All right, folks, if you have a Bible with you, you can pull it out and uh, turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're working through a series called the Upside Down Kingdom here, and part of that we're, we're walking through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' uh, major teaching in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Last week we talked about anger and murder. Guess what, folks? Today we get to talk about adultery and lust. Aren't you lucky? So, let's read what Jesus has to say. Matthew 5, starting in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, I pray right now that you would open our hearts and minds to hear your truth. Father, anything that I would say that's not from you would just go right over our heads, but that your truth would remain. And Father, I just pray that you would give us ears to hear. Lord, I pray that you would calm my nerves and that you would help me to speak your truth and use me as your vessel, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I saw the Gander family at the pipe band parade last night, and I thought to myself was, my goodness, they always come when I talk about sex. (laughs) They're going to think that that's the only thing that we talk about here at Chalmers. On that note, our nursery is increasing, folks. (laughs) And they are actually here to celebrate the arrival of Matthew Kenneth Dykeman, who was born earlier this week. All right, folks, here we go, okay? This is what we're going to do today. Today's going to be awkward. Today's going to be a little bit embarrassing. And I want us just to be okay with that. Because we're going to be talking about things that need to be talked about in the church. Because outside of the church, we're talking about it all the time. We're in the middle of a series right now called the Upside Down Kingdom, where we're looking at the values within the kingdom of God, within this way of living that Jesus invites us into when we submit to him, when we ask him to be Lord of our lives. And if that's something that maybe you haven't done yet, then you'll just be able to see why Christians kind of look weird. It's because we want to follow Jesus, and what Jesus asks us to do looks very different than the culture that we live in. Our culture today, for the most part, would still say that adultery, sleeping with someone else's wife or husband, is wrong. But we're getting to the point where Actually, our culture is getting a lot more lenient on that and saying, you know, but it happens, and so, you know, it's okay. In fact, we, um, Heather and I were talking to a gentleman who has just gone through a divorce maybe two or three years ago, and he was talking about someone else in the community who was going through a divorce because someone in the relationship had found themselves in someone else's bed. And he kind of was saying, you know, this is just what happens in this community. And Heather and I both went, wow, it's become that acceptable? Really? Like, when Jesus talks about, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, everyone in the crowd's going, yeah, yeah, we heard that. Yeah, that makes sense. We don't want that to happen. And then Jesus 
takes it to the next level, as we've been seeing him do. He takes it and he says, this is what you've heard, but I want you to know what the heart is behind the law. The law says don't commit adultery. The law also says don't covet your neighbor's wife. But I want you to understand the heart behind it. That the sins of the flesh always stem from the heart. So, we are looking today at Jesus' stance on adultery and sexual sin. Now, I want to, again, give you another preamble here and say three things right off the bat, just to clarify. First and foremost, when Jesus talks about adultery and lust, in no way is he saying that the natural sexual relations within a committed marriage is anything but God-given and beautiful. Within a committed marriage between husband and wife, sex was given by God And it is good. There is no Victorian prudery in Jesus' words here. He is saying that when you live within the confines of what God has given you, it is good and beautiful and awesome. And so, if you are married here today, this is the one thing that you can take home with you. Go home and have lots of sex because it's good. Half of you will stop paying attention right now, I bet. Okay, second of all, Jesus' teachings here is not just on a certain form of immorality or a certain type of sin. He's not saying here, I'm speaking just to men because lust isn't for women. He's not saying here, I'm speaking just to married people because all the unmarried people can go around and sleep with whoever they want. That's not what he's saying. And any way of trying to interpret it that way is exactly falling into what the Pharisees were doing, looking at the words and saying, where is my loophole here? How do I get what I want while still kind of obeying the law? No way. Jesus is saying that any and every sexual practice which is sinful by deed is also sinful by look and thought. Here's the third thing I want to just clarify. There's a big difference between temptation and sin, okay? Temptation is when an idea comes into your mind. Sin is when you close the door so that the thought can't get out of your mind. My favorite way to understand the difference between temptation and sin comes from Martin Luther. He says, temptation is like a bird flying over your head. It's going to happen, and there's not a whole lot you can do to stop it. Sin is when the bird lands on your head and starts building a nest, Big difference, right? So today we're going to be looking at the sins of sexual sins, but we're also going to be saying, how do we guard against the temptations in what way we can? So Jesus' main teaching here today is that sexual sin is almost always preceded by sinful fantasies, which are inflamed in the undisciplined imagination through what we see. In other words, Our eyes and our hands often lead us into sin. He says, and we all caught this because it's so extreme, right? If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of the body than for your whole body to to go into hell. The question that we have today is, is this literal? Or is this a figure of speech? 
Everybody who thinks that this should be taken absolutely literal, raise up your stub. <laughs> we don't take it literally or else we would all be walking around maimed. Jesus is using a very dramatic, very effective figure of speech. He's not talking about literally self-maiming yourself. He's talking about self-denial and self-mortification, where we die to ourselves. We die to our own desires, our own preferences, our own inhibitions, and follow him. And again, that's what we're talking about within the kingdom of God. And if you are not someone who, at this point, is saying, yes, I want to follow Jesus, yes, I want to call him Lord and Savior, then this doesn't apply to you, because you can do whatever you want, But for those of us who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, we have to say, what does Jesus want us to do? And how do I live for him? And we ask those questions because we know through the scriptures that what he desires for us is actually far better than what we can think about on our own. And so this is a figure of speech. We are to die to ourselves. It's a very severe figure of speech. We need to take these matters severely and intentionally and deal with them in a very uh, severe way. He warns us that if something causes us to sin, we need to remove it. You don't play with it. You don't keep it on the back burner because maybe it'll be better later. You remove it from your life. You run from it. The Apostle Paul echoes these words in 1 Corinthians six eighteen to 20 where he says, flee from sexual immorality. He doesn't say, Like, you know, stick it out because it'll get better. He says, flee from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. Sexual sin, like every other sin that's out there, is a big deal. We, we, we want to make sure that we are following God. And so, how do we find ourselves in these circumstances that could cause us to sin? Often, and again, like any other sin, whether it's gossip or rage or jealousy or whatever it might be, often we find ourselves in a challenging situation because we don't think of the repercussions of our actions. There are always repercussions of our actions. If you get in your car and you drive drunk, there are repercussions to those actions. If you yell at someone, there are repercussions to those actions. If you lie to someone, there are consequences, repercussions to those actions. Yet we don't think about that. A good way of thinking about the repercussions is 10, 10, 10. Thinking about 10, 10, 10. 10 minutes, 10 months, and 10 years. Let me give you an example. Suppose, fitting in our theme for today, suppose that I allow my temptations to lead me into bed with a woman. I'm thinking about in 10 minutes, I'll be having a lot of fun. What I'm not thinking about is 10 months after that, when my wife and I are going through horrific counseling because I've broken her trust and working on that, 
and, and this is actually because I know my wife, and I know that, that divorce isn't an option for us. And so this, it would go into counseling, and we would be working through this, but that would be really hard. For other people, they would just call it quits, and that would be the end of a marriage, and the end of a family. Ten years from now, ten years from now, when I have to sit my kids down, and I have to explain to them why I hurt them and I hurt their mom so badly for a fleeting moment. When I think of 10-10-10, I go, man, the consequences certainly are not worth the 10 minutes. We need to guard ourselves against the temptation of sin and think through our actions so that we don't fall into sin. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 10-13. He says this, But remember, remember the temptations that you face? They're not like the temptations that only Brian faces. And you know, can I tell you that, that I felt that way before? I felt like the temptations that I face, like no one else in the world must face these temptations. I am so sinful. I am so horrible. I, I can't believe how I must be the only one who feels this way. Like, look around at all the other people here. Like, their, their lives are just so perfect. They're so squeaky clean. They're so amazing. My, like, I, I know my inside is just sinful and dirty. Oh. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not what's going on. Remember, the temptations that come into your life, they're no different from what others experience. Sorry, folks. The temptation that you're facing, someone else has faced before you. Someone else, maybe the person sitting beside you is facing facing the same thing. And God is faithful. He will keep the temptation from becoming so strong that you can't stand against it. And when you are tempted, he will show you a way out, flee from temptation, so that you will not give in to it. I want to tell you, this is absolutely true. God gives us his Holy Spirit and he allows us to not be tempted more than we can bear. The problem is, I know at least from, from my own experience, that I face temptation, I face the burden of temptation, and I give in because I go, oh, it's too much for me to bear. And God is saying, no, no, no. I've given you the ability to withstand. And if it ever gets too much for you to bear, I will get you a way out. So I want to talk for a few minutes about some practical application stuff. Because for most of us, we can kind of get our head around, okay, adultery, yeah, it's against God's desire for our lives. Lust, yeah, it's against God's desire for our lives. But it's really hard in our culture that just bombards us with everything. So how do we practically pluck out our metaphorical eye or cut off our metaphorical hand? How do we keep ourselves from being overly tempted? And how do we allow God to help us in our temptation? We're going to get really practical here. Number one, I got to tell you, if this is not what you deal with, and I know some people like lust just isn't an issue for them. Gossip is not an issue for me at all. That's just not the temptation that the devil puts on my life. I know lots of people who are tempted with gossip. Lust? Something that I'm tempted with. I'm guessing that I'm not the only one. So we need to know how we're tempted. 
Can I tell you something? The devil, he knows how to tempt you. He knows exactly where the weak link in your chain mail is. He knows exactly where the weak spot is in your life. And he's not creative. He'll go after that spot again and again and again, as long as it works. And so we need to know how we are tempted. In terms of lust, we need to know that we can be tempted with lust. Men and women are both tempted with lust. It's not just a guy thing. For the most part, guys are more tempted with lust visually, and women are more tempted with lust emotionally, but that's not a set thing. Women can look at a guy and go, man, I want him. And guys can look at a woman and go, man, she just really gets me. So visual temptation, visual temptation. When we talk about visual temptation, you know what that is. It's when you look at something and it leads you to fantasize. When you look at something and it leads you to think and to dwell and to linger on that. And can I tell you that our culture is horrible about this because it bombards us with images that don't even make sense in the context, but we're so used to them. You know, if you turn on your TV and you'll see this half-naked guy riding on a horse in black and white and the commercial is for like a shirt and you're like, but the guy's not even wearing a shirt. (laughs) But it doesn't matter because sex sells. Right? You'll see this scantily clad woman, again, in this like misty black and white thing and, and at the end, it's for perfume. And you're like, I couldn't even spell the perfume. It doesn't make sense, but sex sells. If you're watching TV, just count all of the sexual images that you see just from commercials. That's not even including the TV shows. Things like pornography are a huge addiction in our, in our culture. I heard one stat that children are now having their first encounter with pornography, usually by accident, uh, as they're searching the web, by like age eight. My daughter's six, and that disgusts me. And that many kids can become addicted to pornography by the age of 12. It's not how it used to be, folks. You now don't have to kind of get up the courage to go into an adult store, go to the back room or have a magazine delivered to your house and know that that the postman knows exactly what's going on. It's much more secretive now. It's clicks on a mouse. And we need to know that our culture has no problem with you getting addicted. TV shows and, and movies are showing more and more skin and nudity than ever before. I was talking to a guy who was telling me about this one TV show that he watches, and his wife calls it soft, softcore porn. Because there is so much nudity in this show that is on public TV. Visual temptations. They're everywhere in a culture because they sell. Because, and because our culture doesn't care how destructive that is to marriages, to future marriages, to relationships in general. But visual temptation is not the only temptation, i got to tell you. Emotional temptation is huge. Whether that's in, in soap operas or steamy novels that, that people might, might read, or even more so, I want to tell you, 
women in particular, and again, not exclusively, but women in particular, are finding themselves ingrained into lust because they are emotionally charged. Women are emotionally charged, and they want a man who gets them and who will listen to them. And if your husband at home isn't listening to you or you don't think that he's responding to you, but there's a guy at work or at the grocery store or wherever that wants to spend that time listening to you, wants to spend that time hearing you, it's very easy for your head to go, man, I should have married him. Man, life would be so much better with him. Man, I want to go to bed with him. One of the other ways that that emotional temptation comes in, again, especially with women, not exclusively, is that women will will be dating a guy and will be going, man, I I want him to love me. I want him to love me. And now he's pressuring me into sex, but I I want him to love me. And so maybe if I sleep with him, maybe if, if we allow our relationship to go into this area, then maybe, maybe he'll love me. And maybe he'll fulfill my emotional needs if I fulfill his sexual needs. We need to know how we're tempted. And I'm sure that if you think about it for a second, you do know how you're tempted. Once we know how we're tempted, this is what we need to do next. We need to starve the sumo. This is what I mean. One writer properly used the illusion of a sumo wrestler to explain our sexual temptations and our our sexual hungers. Imagine yourself in the middle of a circle painted on the ground. And there is a sumo wrestler, a 400-pound sumo wrestler in front of you. And your goal is to stay in the circle. But the sumo wrestler's goal is to get you out of the circle. If that sumo wrestler is 400 pounds, he's going to win every single time, isn't he? Let's put that into our context. The circle on the ground is the self-control that you have given to you by the Holy Spirit. Outside of the circle is where you will succumb to the temptation by committing adultery, looking at pornography, self-sex, whatever that temptation is leading you to. And the sumo wrestler is the sexual temptation, is your sexual drive. And it will push you out of the ring every single time if it is 400 pounds. So what do we do? We need to starve the sumo. Because if you are allowing yourself to see and to experience and to feel these emotional temptations, and you're just saying, but you know, it's just a TV show. It's just a website. It's just, it's just, it's just. We find that we're feeding the sumo. We're allowing these thoughts and these images and these whatever they are to brood in our minds. And we'll lose every single time. Job, in the Old Testament, he he understood this issue. He understood that the sumo could always win if he fed it. And so this is what he says. He says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. He says, you know, my eyes are going to lead me to feed the sumo. So I'm going to make a covenant with my eyes to not look lustfully at a young woman. Paul writes to a young man that he was mentoring. This is what he says. He says, run. Run from temptations that capture young people. Always do the right thing. Be faithful, loving, and easy to get along with. Worship, people, worship with people whose hearts are pure. Stay away from stupid and senseless arguments. These only lead to trouble, and God's servants must not be troublemakers, 
They must be kind to everyone, and they must be good teachers and very patient. Run. Run from temptations. Because there are temptations that will capture young minds. Run from them. How do we do that? I want to suggest that you have to put up sexual fences. And again, the author of Proverbs says this, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? It's not a great image. Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? In the military, there's a military tactic of posting sentries around your camp so that nothing can get in. We need moral sentry duty to keep us from going out. i got to tell you, this is something that is, is a big deal, and this is why we're talking about it today at church, because the divorce rate is almost the same within churches as it is outside of churches. People are as addicted to pornography or as tempted with lust within churches as they are outside of churches. And we may say, well, how can that be? It's because we don't talk about this stuff. It's because we don't say, you know what? Jesus has a higher calling, higher standard for our lives. And because we don't talk about it in churches, we're losing people who actually are dealing with this and who are wrestling with this because they just say, you know, I'm just so far gone. More than that, we are finding ourselves humiliated and embarrassed by Christian leaders who find themselves tempted and falling into sexual sin. And you can just think about all the different scandals that you see on the news. Few people have maintained moral integrity in very public ministry better than Billy Graham. Billy Graham is one person who, you could say, very much finished well. And he has for that, amongst other things, the Modesto Manifesto to thank for it. What is the Modesto Manifesto? Well, in November of 1948, as his public ministry began to take hold, Billy Graham called his, his friends, George Beverly Shea, Grady Wilson, and Cliff Barrows, into his hotel room during an evangelistic campaign that they were holding in a place called Modesto, California. And Graham says this, God has brought us here for a point. Maybe he is preparing us for something that we don't know. So let's try to recall all the things that have been stumbling blocks and hindrances to evangelists in the past years, and let's come back together in an hour and talk and pray about and ask God to guard us from them. And so they they went, they came back in an hour, and they created their list. And from it they made pledges which have been known as the Modesto Manifesto, to guard themselves, among other things, against the two most damaging to public ministry. Number one was the inappropriate use and allure of money, and perhaps even more damaging than money entanglements was sexual immorality. For the latter, he says that the rules were pretty simple. Avoid situations that would put them alone with a woman, On the road, they would room close together in close proximity with one another, so to add a margin of social control. And they always prayed for supernatural assistance in keeping themselves clean. I heard of of another pastor who was starting to do on-the-road ministry and, and speaking at different events, and he would go into the hotel, and the first thing he would say was, I'd like you to take the TV 
out of my room. And I don't want the Wi-Fi password for my room. And people would kind of look at him strange, especially the bellboy who had to lug the big TV out of his room. And they would say, come on, isn't that kind of extreme? And the man said, well, if it was good enough for Billy Graham, it's good enough for me. I think that's true. If it's good enough for Billy Graham, it's good enough for us. We need to create these sexual offenses. We need to know where we will not go so that we don't find ourselves in harmful ways. Here are some of the sexual offenses that I've put into my life. I'm not saying that you need to have the same, but I know from myself that I'm someone who is tempted with lust. I have dabbled in pornography when I was younger and have found that to be absolutely detrimental in my life. And so I put these fences and the accountabilities in my own life. And I know that there will be people here who have the same temptations and who are right now going, you mean, Brian, you actually can understand some of what I might be going through? Yeah, I might. Here's what I've, I've done. On my computer, on Heather's computer, I put internet filters so that I can't get to websites that would cause destruction in my life. And I have people in my life who will ask me accountability questions and say, hey, how are you doing? You know, are you allowing lust to creep into your life? By the way, Heather has the passwords for those internet filters instead of I. I try to keep my computer in a public place. And if my family is out of the house, then I even turn off my my internet. Or if I need to use internet, I'll go to the library or to a coffee shop or something like that. Again, just an extra barrier. We didn't do this specifically because of lust. It was for lots of other reasons. We got rid of cable in our house. Can I tell you that other than during hockey season, I don't miss it? Because we always found that there was nothing on when we were watching. But more than that, there was a lot that we didn't want to see when we were watching. And so we said, you know what, we have Netflix, and we'll just use that because it allows us to watch what we want to watch without seeing all the crap that we don't. I'm married now, and so Heather and I have a very good, healthy relationship, and we talk about our sexual needs, and and that's really helpful and healthy so that we can talk about that and so that we can care for one another in those ways. Before we were married and when we, we were dating, and when I was dating before I met Heather, I created these boundaries still because I knew that I wanted to keep my relationships pure. And so when Heather and I were dating... We started dating, and I said, okay, I want to tell you, I'm feeling really strong feelings for you. I'm very much attracted to you, but we're not going to kiss until we're engaged. And Heather at first was like, really? Like, Brian, that's a little extreme, don't you think? And I was like, yeah, yeah, it might be a little extreme, but we're not going to kiss until we're engaged. And we're not going to make out until we're married. How about that? And again, Like, I'm not saying that that needs to be where you put your fence. But I want to tell you why I put my fence there. Because I knew that if I allowed certain things into my relationship with Heather, it was going to be a whole lot easier to slide down the slide of the slippery slope. And to say, well, you know, this is good and this is... But, you know, I'm I'm getting excited here and I just want to move further into our relationship before we should. The other thing is, with Heather and I, we got married. That was awesome. And I'm really glad that we did. 
But if we hadn't gotten married, if because frankly, guys, not every relationship works out, right? And so if we hadn't gotten married, I wanted to be able to stand at her wedding or to face her husband and say to him that while her and I were dating, I treated her with the utmost respect and honor. I wanted to be able to look him in the eye and not be embarrassed by my previous actions. I wanted to look him in the eye and say, I've kept her honor safe. Those are just some of the, of the sexual offenses that I put out for me. I'm not saying that those were where you need to, to, to put your posts. But I want to tell you that you need to have some sort of a boundary. Whether you're married, whether you're single, we need to have some boundaries. Last practical thing, and then we'll have a few final thoughts, is this. For those of you who face sexual temptation, for those of you who don't face sexual temptation, I want to ask you, I want to ask you not to allow your freedom to cause a brother or a sister to sin. And again, I do this with a little bit of fear and trepidation here. As a Christian community and as, as Christ followers, we're not Amish, okay? Like, we do not tell each other what you have to wear and how to dress. And frankly, any culture that tries to legislate fashion does so at huge perils, I think. However, for men and for women, uh, I want to say that you know the difference between making yourself look attractive and making yourself look deliberately seductive. Because there's a difference, right? There's absolutely a big difference. And I want to invite us to care for one another well. And I'm not just talking here on Sunday morning. I'm talking about when you go anywhere. Is to not allow your freedom, because you can wear whatever you want to wear. We we live in a free country. You can do whatever you want to do, but don't allow that freedom to be a stumbling block for someone else. And so, as we think about that, I want to tell you, women... You can look really attractive, really beautiful in a parka, right? Like, you don't have to be half naked to look attractive. I'm not saying go out and wear a parka today. But, (laughs) like in the winter, when women are all, like, covered up because it's, like, minus 40 here, guys, they still look beautiful, don't they? They do. And so when it's hotter out and you are allowed to wear less clothes look attractive, that's fine, no problem. You're beautiful. But don't look deliberately seductive. Because when you look deliberately seductive, well, two things. Number one, from a guy, is you no longer look attractive. You look easy. And number two, the guys that you're going to attract aren't going to be the quality guys. I'll tell you that right away. All right, final thoughts. Here we go. Okay. If you find yourself in a situation where you are living in lust, if you are here today and you're like, oh my goodness, Brian, you are talking right to me and nobody else here knows it, I want to tell you right now, there is forgiveness and there is freedom in Christ from the slavery that you feel. And it feels like slavery. Whether you are sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend and you know that's wrong, whether you are looking at pictures that you shouldn't be looking at, whether you are fantasizing about that person at work that is not your wife, you know that it's wrong. 
and yet you feel enslaved by it. You feel trapped by it. And I want to tell you right now that there is forgiveness and there is freedom in Christ from that slavery. This is not the unforgivable sin. You may think it is. It is not. On God's scale, lust, adultery is on the same level as gossip, cheating, and lying. And it's not unforgivable. You need to deal with it in your life, just like any other sin. You need to confess it before God and say, you know, I know that what I'm doing in my life is not right. You need to receive his love and his grace in your life on faith because he will give it to you. Then you need to turn away from those behaviors, those patterns that you are living in and protect yourself from future sin. But scripture is very clear. There is freedom from this. Galatians 5, 1 says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Galatians 3, 21 and 22 says, If the law could give us new life, we could make right with God by obeying the law. But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin, so we receive God's promise of freedom only by believing in Jesus Christ. There is freedom in Christ. And Jesus says in John eight thirty six, If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. And so I want to invite you to pray with me right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your freedom. And Lord, if there is anyone here today who is feeling enslaved, feeling trapped, feeling a burden, a weight of guilt or sin in their lives... Father God, I pray right now that you would break that bond, that you would break that enslavement, and that in your name you would set them free. Father God, we thank you for your grace and for your love in our lives, whether we are struggling with lust or whether we are struggling with something totally different. And Father, we just ask that you would release us in your grace to live for you and live in your kingdom. Lord, we recognize today that what you say about our lives matters. That your love and grace that comes into our lives is so important. Heavenly Father, we affirm that we want to live for you and not to live for ourselves. And so, Father, even when Jesus tells us that we need to cut off whatever is hindering whatever is leading us into sin. And we feel the pain of that. Because some of these, these things that have caused us to sin have become very comfortable in our lives and become very routine in our lives. And yet, today, Lord, we, we recognize that you ask us to deal with them severely in your grace and in your love. And Father God, I want to ask anybody who is here today who just maybe hearing this for the first time and at the beginning of this, of this message would say, no, I don't want to follow Jesus because I don't, I'm just not ready for that. If you've come here and, and you've now said, you know, this sounds kind of weird, but it sounds like what Jesus wants for my life is better than what I'm living it right now. If that's you today, I just want to invite you to pray quietly in your head with me right now. Heavenly Father, I recognize that the way that I've been living is not the way you want me to. I've been living for myself, and I've hurt 
myself and I've hurt other people in that process. And you call me to more. Lord, I've heard today that you love me, and if that is true, then I want to receive your love. And I ask that you would forgive me for the sin in my life, and that you would help me to follow you and to live each day for you. Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit into my life to lead me and to guide me. In Jesus' name, amen.